New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to look at unity and diversity in American politics. Now, let me just preface this discussion by saying that in the last 45 years of my career as an interviewer, I have avoided current affairs completely, almost entirely, 99%. Uh, today, I am making a definite exception. And the reason is because I couldn't have a better guest to discuss this with my good friend and neighbor, Glenn Aparicio Perry, who is the author of Original Thinking, a Radical Revisioning of Time, Nature, and Humanity, as well as Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. If you haven't watched the earlier interviews with Glenn, I would encourage you to do so. It'll provide real context for this discussion, which is going to focus largely on 21st century politics in the United States through the lens of his profound understanding of Native American culture and the role of Native Americans in the history and politics of the United States. Of course, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Glenn. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Jeff. Thank you so much for everything you do. You know, I preface this particular interview by uh, reminding the viewers that I rarely cover current events in politics uh, when I do interviews. And the reason is because I'm going for something timeless. I, I'd like to think that even though we're discussing current politics, by which I mean 21st century politics today, this interview will probably be useful to people who are listening a hundred or two hundred years from now because I think we're going to have some touchstones that deal with perennial issues. And uh, those are some of the issues that you and I have discussed in our previous interviews. Oh, what a beautiful way to frame it. Thank you, Jeff. I mean, to me, as a as a person who agrees with William Faulkner, who said the the past is is not dead. In fact, it isn't even past. What's happening in the present always does reflect the past, and it also foretells the future. So it's 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 very deep layers, and and hopefully we can look at what's going on now through that larger lens. So thank you for that. Well, I mean, some extraordinary things have happened here in uh, the early part of the 21st century in the United States. We had the first female uh, presidential candidate from a major political party. We have elected the first black president, and uh, we currently are uh, in the days and the era and the regime of uh, Donald Trump, who who you identify uh, very appropriately so as a trickster. And the trickster is a very important figure in Native American mythology, particularly here in the Southwest. 
I would say that Donald Trump is a trickster even outside of Native American. You know, you could look at him from other other uh, stories or mythologies. But in the Southwest, you know, the, the trickster figure can be uh, a human being that, that acts in a contrarian manner. In the Lakota tradition, that would be a heyoka. Uh, a contrarian manner opposite to what you might expect. So, for instance, Donald Trump has been uh, cozying up to our what we would have called our enemies before and berating our allies. That's completely opposite to what an American president would be expected to do. Um, but the difference between Donald Trump and a Native American trickster is that Donald Trump is not a conscious trickster. A Native American trickster would be purposely engendering higher consciousness through shaking somebody out of their reality. Trump is not, it does not appear that Trump is conscious of his role, but I contend that he's fulfilling it nonetheless, and that consciousness is awakening. And I really see that here in America right now. I see uh, Trump as a catalyst for unveiling America's shadow. And look at what's happening. Look at what's happening. The, uh, when he first is elected, there's the Women's March, which was the largest march in, 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 in history at that time. It's now been, been surpassed by the recent marches having to do with race. So when it comes to women, when it comes to race, when it comes to the Civil War, which Trump has resurrected in our consciousness, Americans are now seeing a little bit more how it really was, and change is afoot. It's really happening. And, uh, you know, in a very odd way, we have Donald Trump to thank for that. You mentioned the Civil War, Glenn, and I think uh, one of the things uh, that we have to appreciate is even though the Civil War was fought 160 years ago, it's not clear to me that as a nation, we have digested the lessons of the Civil War. It seems as if there's still an undercurrent of uh, the, the issues from the Civil War that are still sort of bubbling up in our culture. Yes. I completely agree with you. Um, I, I would say that the, those issues were there from the very beginning, long before the Civil War. And uh, those issues played out in, in two, um, the, the Whig Party, which was the original party of Abraham Lincoln, um, um, actually goes, at, it, it goes under because it's split into two factions, one that was for advancement of slavery into new territories and one that was not for uh, uh, expansion of slavery. And what happens there is that uh, the Whig Party goes under and the Republican Party of Lincoln is formed. The Civil War is fought and, and uh, we don't know what would have happened if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, but he was. And he had oddly picked a uh, Democrat, uh, Andrew Johnson, to be his vice president, which we spoke about in our last interview, how similar he is to Trump. And so what was going to be the resurrection was very greatly slowed down, or, or the reconstruction, I should say, <laughs> was slowed down and, in fact, took 100 years until we had civil rights legislation 
And even after civil rights legislation, we continue to have uh, systemic racism, which affects us today. Um, so we really never resolved the Civil War, and we never looked at it honestly. I mean, I think one of the big differences between the United States and South Africa is that South Africa, after their apartheid regime, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and they used a process of restorative justice to try to heal both the oppressed and the oppressor. You really have to do both. We've never taken an honest look at our uh, race relations. We've never taken an honest look at the genocide that was committed against Native America. And we've never taken an honest look at the systemic sexism in our society, which is arguably even stronger than racism. Um, and so, uh, but now we, now I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this is all coming out. And, uh, and uh, now it's a dangerous period too. I don't want to overstate the hope. I mean, there's a lot that can happen here, including sliding into outright fascism. But it doesn't appear at the moment, that's what's going to happen. You write about unity and diversity in in your book. And unity, uh, you describe the, basically two kinds of unity. There's unity within diversity, and then there's also a kind of unity based on sameness. You know, I want to give credit to my uh, California Institute of Integral Studies professor, Alfonso Montori, what a great guy. Um, besides being a, a, a wonderful scholar, he plays uh, jazz saxophone and uh, speaks five languages. Uh, and Alfonso Montori, uh, originally, he describes himself as being from downtown Europe, but he, he was from Italy and very keenly aware of what happened in Italy. And uh, um, Alfonso said to me, when I was speaking about unitive consciousness once, he said, be careful about unitive consciousness because fascism is also unitive. It's a unity of, of sameness. It's everything within the state, everything for the state, nothing outside the state is how Mussolini defined it. And indeed, that's really true. And it made me realize that that was the dynamic, the very dynamic uh, between unity and diversity and unity through sameness uh, was uh, present at the very founding of the United States. The, the, the ideal the, of, of, of the founding fathers that was said in the founding documents really had not even come close to being realized. They spoke about uh, how all men are created equal, but that meant all white male property owners are created equal. Um, in the in the uh, in the founding of the nation, but the seed of that equality, inspired by Native America, has unfolded closer toward unity in diversity. But we've never gone away completely from the backlash that happens from time to time, where various leaders have tried to use the excuse of national security to to build. Um, a reactionary uh, support for white nationalism. I mean, Andrew Jackson was one of those, but Chester Arthur has the Chinese Exclusion Act and even FDR in prisons, uh, Japanese Americans. Um, so we've had a lot of instances in American history where we've 
made immigrants into the other. And, and also, of course, Native Americans is the worst example. They're not immigrants, but they're, they're the people that were uh, dehumanized by Andrew Jackson the most. Now, I'm under the impression that uh, this sense of otherness that comes up in sociology, comes up in politics, uh, might have a biological basis to it that, uh, I mean, you can look at, for example, fish on a coral reef, fish of the same species, but who live on different parts of the coral will have uh, different, slightly different markings. And if they venture outside of their territory into the territory of other fish of the same species, uh, they will be attacked on occasion. So it, it seems if it exists in fish, uh, it, it might be very, very deeply encoded into our genetic makeup. It's definitely true. I often hold up Native Americans as an example of a culture that that does have the greater greater unity and diversity that in their politics includes the natural world. But even in Native American cultures, amongst the Diné, amongst the Haudenosaunee, amongst uh, Blackfoot, amongst there often is a word that describes that particular tribe as the people, and the implication is that those that are not of the tribe are less than fully human. So, I think it is it is partly part of the human condition, perhaps, but. I also think that we are evolving, perhaps, to accept greater unity and diversity and maybe moving past that. At some point, it could take thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but I think we have the, uh, the impetus to do that now. Well, one of the interesting points that you make is that at the uh, time uh, when Donald J. Trump was elected president in 20. 16, America had probably achieved a status of maximum diversity in terms of having just elected a black president, having nominated the first woman to ever run uh, for the presidency from a major party. Uh, it, so it, it's not surprising that uh, at a moment of maximum diversity, there would also be a backlash. Yes, I chose the word maximum diversity carefully because in the founding of the nation, the founding fathers were concerned about uh, uh, monarchy. They wanted to re go away from monarchy, but they were also were concerned about anarchy. So the devolved mode of unitive consciousness would be monarchy or totalitarianism, fascism, a unitarian sameness of oneness. But then on the other end of the spectrum, maximum diversity, which is the furthest you can get from unit of consciousness, perhaps, the devolved mode of maximum diversity would be anarchy. It would be anarchy because, because everything is so diverse that, that there's no, that, that the society cannot cohere. So it doesn't have to be that way. And arguably we are not even close to our maximum diversity yet. Um, but we are, we are reaching the limits of what the system seems to be able to bear. So that's why there's somebody like Donald Trump, because if it wasn't Trump, it would have been somebody else who came forward to push back on this, on this evolving inclusiveness that was growing and, uh, uh, and to, 
try to go try to create unity through exclusion. And that's something we have to be very vigilant, aware of, and and, uh, and not let that happen, frankly. Well, and I forgot to mention, of course, that uh, at the same time during the Obama era, uh, we also legalized gay marriage, which was a huge step forward. Oh, yeah. And by the way, I always say this to people. I probably said it to you in casual conversation. I'm not sure that gay marriage would have become legalized, but a great euphemism evolved. And people start to call it marriage equality. And when that happened, there was a, a, an enormous effect occurred, and mainly amongst women, because women, I think, felt that in marriage, existing marriage, um, that they were uh, needing greater equality. So when, when 60% of the American public was for marriage equality at the time that the Supreme Court made it legal all across the land, it actually broke down to only 50% of men were for uh, marriage equality and 70% of women. <laughs> That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That's sort of a, almost a precondition for a backlash to occur. Yeah, there's been a backlash. Um, and in fact, yeah, that's, uh, there, also at the end of the Obama administration, we were having a, uh, we were having a, uh, the last group of people that, that were, uh, beginning to gain greater rights in the society were transgender people. And that's something that, uh, uh, uh the Trump administration has tried to roll back, but often unsuccessfully. I mean, uh, um, for instance, you know, when, when James Mattis was the, uh, 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 Department of Defense Secretary, uh, Trump made an announcement by tweet that he was, that, 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 uh, transgender people would no longer be allowed in the military. And Mattis's wise and, and, and measured reaction was to say, okay, we'll study this and did essentially nothing. You know, so it didn't really change in the way that Trump supporters maybe thought it did. You can't just change things by tweet, actually, not not certain things. One of the other paradoxes of Donald Trump as a trickster president is that although he he was elected as a Republican, uh, and although he certainly has a, a hardcore base of right-wing supporters, uh, many of his policies are an anathema in terms of traditional Republican conservatism. Absolutely. You know, and uh, one of the groups that I'm watching very closely now is uh, called the Lincoln Project. It's, it's begun by uh, uh, people like Rick Wilson, um, uh, Kellyanne Conway's uh, husband, George Conway, uh, and others. Um, this affected Republicans, and the Lincoln Project is is very interesting uh, enterprise. And I think will probably be a determinative factor in preventing Donald Trump from winning a second, a second seat because so much of politics, almost like sports, you know, is, this is something like Jerry Seinfeld would say, you know, you don't root for the player, you just root for the uniform, you know, the, the, because there's so much trading and stuff. But, 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 uh, um, in politics, 
there's a, a large percentage of uh, people who identify as Republican will vote Republican no matter who the candidate is. Uh, Donald Trump, just like you said, there were no Republicans in Congress that supported Donald Trump's uh, um, uh, nomination um, until he became the presumptive nominee, you know, except for Jeff Sessions and a very few others that started to come on board. Um, but he got a large percentage of the Republican vote. And because there's such a strong media uh, attacks on Trump, rightly or wrongly, I could say mostly rightly, but uh, the, uh, the people who identify as Republican feel stronger, like they have to, they have to coalesce around their leader. Um, so it's hard to, to uh, chip off from that uh, identified support, but it is happening and people like the Lincoln Project are doing it successfully. I mean, for example, Trump believes that tariffs are good, and that that goes smack against traditional Republican conservatism. I think in the past, tariffs were largely a, a Democratic policy. Well, yeah, and, and and really, it fallen out of favor in both parties largely ever since the Smoot-Hawley tariff in the nineteen, you know, around nineteen thirty plunges us deep into the depression, tariffs have uh, uh, largely fallen in favor. The problem with tariffs is that they have ripple effects. So when you put a tariff on one thing, um, you know, like steel or something, you know, the steel is not, it's just not a standalone product. It's used in all kinds of other things. And, and so um, once you put a tariff on one thing, um, it's very hard to trace what's going to happen. And the world is getting even more interconnected. If the tariffs didn't even work in Lincoln's time, actually. So, so they're really not working today. But you're right, there are other things too. I mean, obvious, obvious things we haven't, I didn't talk about yet, but you know, an anti-Russia policy or a strong uh, policy against Russian aggression is something that Republicans held to more than Democrats, although Democrats were against Russia aggression also. Um, there, there was, there were so many things where, uh, family values. I mean, Trump is not a, you know, I mean, he's been divorced many, many times. He's had many affairs. He's spoken about, you know, I mean, this is not a secret. You know, it, it, he is not a, uh, you know, somebody you can hold up to represent family values. So almost all the things in the standard Republican platform didn't apply to Trump. He posed himself as a populist, and that's a very dangerous thing. And I talk about that quite a bit, because with populism, um, you always have the possibility of it eroding into fascism or a totalitarian regime. And we have, we're on the precipice of that now. One of the things that you point out is that originally uh, the idea of the electoral college when, when it was created, uh, I believe by the founders, is that uh, the electors would uh, serve as sort of a, a safeguard against uh, uh, a dictatorship or a populist uh, president coming in who, who uh, defied all of the, the previous uh, unstated norms of American government. Absolutely. That's what the purpose of the Electoral College is. There's a lot of debate about the Electoral College today. 
And uh, one of the purposes of the Electoral College was to balance power between the, uh, the urban and rural areas. And at least the intent of that had some uh, uh, efficacy. I mean, it was... It, 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 it was a, a compromise that was that was built between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. It's also part of why the uh, uh, the capital of the country is moved from New York to D.C. It's and and New York just becomes the financial capital. Um, there were a lot of compromises made between urban and rural areas, and I personally feel it. Uh, there's still perhaps some reason to keep the Electoral College, but it needs some tweaks. Um, and, and the original purpose of, of preventing an oligarch, from, or, or not an oligarch, a, uh, uh, an autocrat from coming in to power is obsolete completely um, because the states, the states design laws that force the electors to go along with the popular vote in their state. So that no longer one of its purposes. I mean, there were people talking about it when uh, uh, Trump won the nomination. They were hoping some electors in the states that didn't pass uh, laws against going with the popular vote would actually vote against their population. That didn't that didn't happen. But I mean, in theory, it could have. Um, but uh, but there were other things. What I discuss in the book is that afterwards. Um, the political parties became the gatekeepers. And now picture the old smoke-filled back rooms, the cigar-smoking guys. That's how decisions were made. And then this happened as recently as 1968, you know, when, when RFK is running, um, also Eugene McCarthy, and Lyndon Johnson decides to drop out of his second term, Robert Kennedy wins three primaries in a row, and he's won the California primary. He has a lot of momentum. It's possible that he's going to become the next uh, Democratic nominee, and then he's assassinated, you know, shortly after Martin Luther King was assassinated, a pivotal time in American history. But what happened in the, in the Democratic Party then? Because the party elites held all the power, they instill, they installed Hubert Humphrey as the nominee, even though Hubert Humphrey never ran in any of the primaries. Um, and Hubert Humphrey runs against Richard Nixon and loses narrowly. Um, and, and after that, um, uh, the, uh, and that, then the things start to shift in the Democratic Party. And in 1972, they decide to make the democratic process more open the, because there's a rebellion. They, they want, you know, the democratic people were, you know, just like today with Bernie Sanders, they were pissed off that there was a prejudice against a popular vote. And so they open up the system and George McGovern became the candidate in 1972, but he loses 49 of 50 states to Richard Nixon, which is kind of incredible because, only a year and a half later, Richard Nixon is in deep trouble and ready, you know, and, and, and looking at resignation because of Watergate. But none of that had come out yet by 1972. So he wins 49 of 50 states. And that's when the Democrats make a compromise and they decide to have superdelegates, which are the ones that they feel best represent their party's interests, to have one third of the power 
and two-thirds of the power was determined by popular vote. But now that's been scuttled because of the rebellion against the way that Bernie Sanders was treated against Hillary Clinton. And the Democrats are now in the same position the Republicans were in because the Republicans didn't have this safeguard. They didn't have superdelegates. And because they didn't have superdelegates, they let Trump win the nomination, even though their party leaders were against it. It's very confusing, isn't it? But the power of the people is not always necessarily the best thing. <laughs> I just, I just, because the people can make big mistakes and they can be swayed by populist movements as they were to some extent by Donald Trump. Well, let's define populism. It's a term that I've heard a lot, and I know it's associated with with certain uh, people like George Wallace or Huey Long. Uh, populists, uh, I gather, tend to be demagogues, but, but what really is a populist? Well, I'm not sure I know the best definition, but, uh, but what, what it feels like to me is that these populist demagogues always appeal to the emotions of people. And they are not typically, um, uh, they typically have very poorly thought out platforms or actual uh, uh, ideas for how to govern. So, you know, Mussolini, you know, was like that, you know, I mean, he, he, he didn't really have a very well organized uh, uh, ideology. Donald Trump has no ideology. In fact, Andrew Jackson had no real political ideology, but knew how to appeal to the uh, common man and get the emotions stirred up. The, the populist demagogue, it seems to me, is the one that's successful in stirring up um, emotion and often very irrational emotion and dangerous emotion that is a backlash um, against uh, uh, a greater democratic urge or, or, or for greater unity and diversity. Prior to uh, Trump's election in 2016, whether we had a Democratic president or a Republican president, the, the dominant ethos was uh, what you define as, and I've heard other scholars define as neoliberalism, and in other words, global capitalism. That seemed to be the uh, implicit uh, uh, accepted uh, moral authority, uh, Republican or Democrat. And uh, it it led to, I think, a 40-year period of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and many other social issues kind of being shunted off to the side and not being really addressed. And, and so I suppose when a populist came along and said, hey, the system is rigged against you, it, it sort of struck a chord with people. Yes, I mean in the in the 2016 election, um, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were appealing in similar ways. Um, uh, Trump was perhaps more successful in in stirring up anger among the people, but there was also you know similar emotions were being stirred up by Bernie Sanders as well. You brought up a very interesting point, and neoliberalism. I'd love to talk about that. But first, when I talk about that, I want to say this. It's a very confusing term for most people. 
we're having a conversation. You and I are very familiar with the term, but I, I'd say the, the most Americans don't know what neoliberalism is, and and they and they're confused by the term because it it, it truly includes both liberals and conservatives, um, and so uh, it's it's a very confusing term. Um, and really, what I mean by neoliberalism is just what the world order is, and I try to look at that fairly carefully. Because there's positives to the world order as it existed since uh, World War II, and there's negatives. Um, and there's a lot of the negatives are very much unseen because we're like a fish swimming in the neoliberal pond. You know, we, are, we don't see the water we're in because we, that's everything. So I try to take that apart. And if I may, I'll take a, just a, a couple of minutes. I mean, I would say, you know, originally, yes, neoliberalism is multilateral capitalism with socially liberal policies. Okay, that's kind of the succinct definition. Um, things like the World Trade Organization, GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, the, uh, the World Bank, all these are instruments of maintaining the world order, maintaining this multilateral trade. And there's a lot of good things about that. I mean, Thomas Friedman once claimed that no two countries that have a McDonald's have ever gone to war together. And that was disproved shortly after he wrote the book. But, but, it's, but it's partly true that if you have multilateral trade, you're, you're going to be, there's more social intercourse between different people and, and less likely for sentiments of war to uh, uh, develop. Um, you know, you could you could look at that with the China and America now. Even though it's extremely tense relations, there's a ton of trade that goes before us. So it's in that sense, it's very unlikely we're actually going to go to war. Um, um, but there's a whole big shadow side of the neoliberal world order, and I do delve into that also because just the fact that we base our success on economics so much and that political governments are run often by economists who are spurring on economic growth, ignores the fact that you can't grow infinitely on a finite planet. It ignores the damage that's been done to the ecology. Uh, and uh, the damage is enormous. I mean, we are, we are, we are uh, killing off species at a rate of somewhere between you know, 10 to 100,000 times faster than what we might say is normal. So we really need to change and look at um, our the consequences of neoliberalism. And there are other consequences as well. And, I, and the point is neoliberalism is commodifying the world. Everything is becoming commodifying, not just, you know, repairs to your home, children's birthday parties, uh uh, dating, everything is becoming commodified. And uh, that's, um, I, I think, has some very deleterious consequences. Well, especially considering the subtitle of your book, Original Politics, is Making America Sacred Again. And the commodification of everything is almost the opposite of the sacralization. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the foundational basis of my book is looking at how Native American values inspired the founding fathers. Um, and 
those deep values of of intimate interrelationship with the land are the values that need to resurface now and to some degree are resurfacing if we if we look at it optimistically when Rachel Carson comes around you know and writes silent spring she awakens people to the radical interconnection of uh, the plant and, and human and animal kingdoms you know so it's it's very much the case that the world is a radically interrelated whole. This is this value that is that is understood deeply in Native America needs to permeate the consciousness more and more. And we literally need to stop valuing money over over ecological health and well-being. And people have been talking about this for a long time, but it is essential that we shift our values. You know, uh, Oren Lyons, who, who had the, uh, had the distinction of being at the United Nations with Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the Dalai Lama, and, uh, other leaders in, in, I think the 1980s, uh, he, and also, uh, Al Gore, who was then a senator, uh, they came up with in four words, a succinct motto, value change for survival. We have to change our values if we're going to survive. And that's where we have to make uh, take a good hard look at the neoliberal world order, which values money over everything. And to some extent, uh, Donald Trump was has worsened that condition because for him, relations between other countries has more to do with transactional business opportunities than it has to do even with building friendships and alliances. So um, Trump has been a weird player in that he's both disrupted the world order, you know, threatening to to pull out of NATO and whatnot, and he's also strengthened it when it comes to certain like addiction to oil and gas and things like that, um, even maybe as much or more so than his predecessors. So we really need to change. And I think I quote the Cree Indian proverb that says something like, you know, only after the last fish has, uh, has been caught and the last stream poisoned will we realize that we cannot eat money. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Well, Glenn Aparicio Perry, this has been a, a very instructive conversation. I uh, want to encourage any of our viewers who haven't heard the previous two interviews with you in this series to check them out because they're all very powerful and relevant. And uh, I also want to let our viewers know that we have one more planned where we're going to talk about the return to wholeness in American politics. Glenn, once again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. It's been very wonderful as always. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.